Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Michael Gratz, the author with Ian Shapiro of The Wolf at the Door, The Menace of Economic Insecurity and How to Fight It. In The Wolf at the Door, Gratz and Shapiro argue that Americans care less about income inequality and more about their own insecurity. As voices on the right of the political spectrum call for further tax cuts and deregulation, and those on the left for broader redistributive policies, and both sides call for restricted trade to protect jobs, Wolf at the Door focuses on the concerns of ordinary Americans, secure employment, stable status, and safe communities. Gratz and Shapiro propose that these can be achieved not through protectionism or class warfare, but a return to the hard work of building coalitions around realistic goals and seeing those goals through the political process. The book makes substantial recommendations for increasing jobs, improving wages, protecting families suffering from unemployment, and providing better health care and child care, and they guide us through the strategies needed to enact change. My guest, Michael Gratz, is the Wilbur H. Friedman Professor of Tax Law and the Columbia Alumni Professor of Tax Law at Columbia University. He has served in the Department of the Treasury and is author with Ian Shapiro of Death by a Thousand Cuts, The Fight Over Taxing Inherited Wealth. Michael Gratz, welcome to the New Mix Network. Thank you, Tom. Uh, so I want to start um, with a blurb from the back of uh, my copy of your book from David Gergen. Uh, and it begins, it is now beyond debate that rising inequality is not only leaving millions of Americans living on a sharp edge, but also is threatening our democracy. For activists and scholars alike who are struggling to create a more equitable society, this is an essential read. And so uh, I don't know if you have a copy of your of your book in front of you, but on page 29, uh, I think you offer what I think is one of the a really great synopsis of um, what you're describing. Uh, the, the first full paragraph uh, beginning with um, but the fundamental problem. I was wondering if you could read that for us. The fundamental problem arising from many causes is the insecurity facing the hollowed out middle class and those living in or near poverty. It typically takes two working parents to provide an adequate family income, but single parent households abound, especially among women with less than a college education. 
Life expectancy for both men and women at the middle of the income distribution has dropped in recent years. There is an epidemic of drug abuse and even suicide among working class white men in America. In 2018, one fourth of middle American adults said that they had skipped some kind of medical care because of its cost. Total household debt is now nearly 14 trillion, surpassing the previous peak in 2008, with most of the increase since then having gone to pay for cars and colleges. Defined benefit retirement pensions are a relic, leaving retirees vulnerable to the vicissitudes of business cycles and financial markets. Labor unions now represent just over 10% of workers, with the majority of those in the public sector. Rising costs have put adequate housing out of reach for millions of Americans. In 2017, a worker had to earn $17.14 an hour, nearly two and a half times the federal minimum wage, to afford a one-bedroom rental home without spending more than 30% of his or her income. Middle-class fathers and mothers struggling to make a living now fear with good reason that their children will be worse off than they are. So that's a lot. And your book offers a variety of different solutions to combat some of what you just read. Uh, In chapter two, you suggest that there are six building blocks for constructing a distributive politics. Can I ask you to walk us through these six building blocks? Sure, Tom. Um, I should say at the outset that our book, as you know, is is about both policy and politics. And um, in these building blocks, we are focused not on electoral politics, but on legislative politics, the politics that are necessary to get change in America. And the six building blocks that we describe are first and most importantly, to think about coalitions. So the political science literature is filled with suggestions that people should think about the median voter and that the legislature will necessarily approve changes that are supported by the median voter. Uh, But there's an awful lot of evidence that middle and lower class Americans have very little sway in the political process. And therefore, we need to build coalitions that will be effective in um, getting the kinds of changes that we need to combat economic insecurity. A good example here that we use in our book is the Occupy movement. And you may remember that the slogan of the Occupy movement was, we are the 99%. But the 99% is not an effective coalition. It's very hard to find anything that 99% of Americans would agree on. And in order to get business done in the legislatures of the country, federal legislature as well as state legislatures, you've got to have an effective coalition. Once you build a coalition, you have to keep it together. And here, The second building block is that you must have something beyond self-interest to keep the coalition together. 
if you just have self-interest in terms of dollars, somebody can always create a blocking coalition by promising people more money. Um, and uh, what will keep a coalition together, and, and this is based in part on the work that Ian Shapiro and I did on the coalition that was successful in repealing the estate tax, is to have moral commitments, to have a moral argument for why the change that you're proposing is good and important. It's necessary to have those kinds of commitments in order to keep coalitions together and to block opposing coalitions. The third uh, building block is to pursue proximate goals. Uh, we have been criticized, actually, from many on the left that our goals are too, um, too incremental, not uh, far-reaching enough. And here, um, I, I would cite for you um, Bob Greenstein, who was the head of the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities and one of the most effective uh, advocates for low-income individuals uh, in the last generation in America. And he says that when you get the opportunity, you have to try and move two steps ahead. And when the pendulum swings back, you've got to be careful only to go a half a step backwards. And that's the way the U.S. political system has been um, designed is so that incremental changes are usually the only ones that are possible, except in wartime or um, in, in during the Great Depression. And then you have to entrench your proximate gains. That is to say, when you are successful in the legislative process, you have to make sure that you've created a mechanism that will allow it to be expanded for its full opportunity. And here there are, there are two examples. One's the classic example of a successful entrenchment, which is Social Security. Franklin Roosevelt, for political reasons, mostly having to do with Southern Democrats, uh, left most African-Americans out of Social Security when it was originally enacted by excluding agricultural workers and domestic workers from its scope. But over time, it expanded, and the financing mechanisms of Social Security have made it impossible politically to undo, despite efforts uh, over the years, including uh, during the George W. Bush administration, to privatize uh, Social Security. Uh, the fifth of our building blocks is resources. Um, and you need resources to be successful in a legislature. Uh, typically, this requires money, um, but if you don't have the money, it requires people who are willing uh, to go and work and meet with legislators and uh, put a lot of energy into their into their efforts. And then the final thing uh, that we uh, insist that you need is effective leadership. Uh, somebody has to hold the coalition together has to create the messaging uh, and has to uh, um, really pay, play, a, play a role in organizing uh, and maintaining the effectiveness of a coalition once you've created it. 
So it's interesting to me, uh, so many of what you've just described, and I suspect, and again, you said you've been criticized on the left for the idea of pursuing proximate goals, but because so much of the rest of this is so much like um, a template for social movement politics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it is, It is in fact, uh, um, almost necessary uh, to have a social movement. Um, and it, and it's difficult, as, as you know, uh, both sure. to, cr- to create and sustain social movements. Yeah, especially the, sus- the, the sustaining part. Um, you know, the energy dissipates over time for, for all but uh, a handful of issues. Um, so, so let's then delve into some of your specific proposals for combating income insecurity. Um, the book has a chapter dedicated to kind of the, the failure of leveling the playing field by using housing policy, um, but then goes on to identify a, a number of different things that we can do that, um, again, will sort of uh, pursue these proximate goals. Uh, the first of these is to expand the earned income tax credit. Exactly. So, so the earned income tax credit was a policy that was produced in the 1970s uh, during the Ford administration with the support of the Democratic leader of the Senate Finance Committee, Russell Long. Uh, and at that time, it was a fairly trivial credit that allowed uh, some people uh, essentially to to receive a, a income tax credit, uh, and if they didn't have enough income tax liability to receive a check, uh, that would offset some of their payroll taxes. But over time, with both Republican and Democratic leadership, the earned income tax credit has grown into uh, one of the major supports for uh, increasing wages of low and moderate income workers. It's paid directly to the worker and is not given to the firm for raising wages, which often doesn't actually happen. Um, And it has been enormously successful, but it has major shortcomings that we argue uh, could be fixed and and fixed with a bipartisan, um, with bipartisan support. Uh, first and most importantly, the size of the credits, which are several thousand dollars now for families with children, uh, single parents included with children, um, are trivial for single workers without children. And so the main uh, expansion that we call for uh, is to uh, create a, a robust earned income tax credit for Uh, single workers without children. Uh, The provision is is, uh, unnecessarily complex. It has led to great benefits in its complexity for income tax filing operations like TurboTax and Mm -hmm. H&R Block. H&R Block, sure. Um, And it also has uh, penalties on marriage that really have kept uh, a lot of low-income workers with single parents, uh, particularly from marrying. 
because you lose credits uh, as your income goes up. And, and the credit phases out at, at a too low a level and, and too steeply. That is, it could be a much more gentle phase out that would go up into the, into the middle class. So it needs improvement. Um, but it has been enormously effective over the years. And it seems to us um, to be approximate goal uh, in the way that uh, universal basic income, which is one of its big competitors, is not. Uh, getting a coalition uh, to support a universal basic income is virtually impossible in the United States. As we point out in the book, uh, the left wants to add a universal basic income on to Medicare and Social Security and the earned income tax credit and other um, advantages for low and moderate income people. Uh, and the right wants to use a, the supporters of the universal basic income on the right want to use it to replace uh, all of the benefits uh, that now go to, to low income uh, folks. And so... Um, Getting an agreement on on universal basic income seems to me to be uh, really pie in the sky, uh, even though it has garnered support uh, from folks on both the left and the right. Yeah, it, and it, it's a little similar to the, the idea of a negative income tax. Exactly. Universal basic income um could be structured as a negative income tax, which, as you know, Milton Friedman right. uh, proposed. And and on the left, Martin Luther King, in his last book, uh, supported the universal basic income. So it has supporters on both the left and the right, but those supports um, are conditional <laughs> on uh, either maintaining or eliminating the entire uh, edifice of, of protections and social insurance that we now have in the United States. So I think it's, I just think it's not, uh, not likely to happen. Uh, and uh, expanding the income, in, income tax credit will make work pay uh, without uh, the problems that, that, that this has, um, sure. that the universal basic income has. And as you said, it's already entrenched. It's it's been effective, and so it's just a matter of of expanding on that. Exactly. So, um, one of the most interesting chapters I thought had to do with moving from unemployment to reemployment. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the trade adjustment assistance? Sure. Um, trade adjustment assistance was enacted during the Kennedy administration as an effort to provide transition uh, for workers who lost their jobs uh, due to trade, due to increased uh, trade. Uh, at that time, trade was increasing, uh, particularly with uh, respect to imports from Japan uh, and, uh, and from Germany. The, the automobile imports uh, were a major example, and they had disruptive effects on uh, workers and trade adjustment assistance was supposed to be designed to move those workers from unemployment to reemployment, um, but it never worked. Um, it was underfunded. Uh, you couldn't uh, prove that you lost your job because of international trade. 
um, the labor uh, unions didn't support it until it was too late because they were opposed to free trade. And it has really never worked, although its basic structure, uh, which is to provide benefits uh, and training um, to people who are out of work, uh, is really a fundamentally important idea. Uh, And we argue for something that we call universal adjustment assistance, uh, which would provide uh, education, uh, training, transportation where necessary, support for moving if you need to move locations, uh, and so forth for people who lose their jobs without regard uh, to requiring any individual to prove that they lost their job because of global trade on the one hand or technological change on the other. Um, And we think this is extremely important, along with revising the unemployment insurance system, which itself is an archaic artifact of the 1930s. And and also, as you point out, is widely different depending on the state that you live in. Uh, Here in in Michigan, for instance, we've been going through uh, just incredible problems with our unemployment system, uh, kicking people out due to computer errors and then claiming that they were committing fraud and, you know, a few states over, the benefits are very generous. It's just a, it's kind of a nightmare for people who have to confront it. Yeah. In the 1930s, uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, was fearful, I think appropriately fearful, that the Supreme Court that was sitting then would strike down a national program of unemployment insurance, uh, even though he Uh, was clear, uh, Roosevelt himself was clear that we needed a national program. Uh, But instead, what we got was a state-based program, which, as you describe, uh, has real variations across the states, including many states that really don't cover very many unemployed workers. In Florida, the number was about 11%. Uh, some states wow. it's as low as 9%. And uh, there are incentives for states, as, as you describe it, including Michigan, to uh, provide um, inadequate benefits. And so even if you're covered, uh, the benefits are not enough to protect you during a period of unemployment. And one thing that the COVID um, pandemic revealed is the inadequacy of unemployment insurance. And so Congress had to build a national unemployment insurance program during the pandemic uh, because of the shortcomings of the existing program. Uh, But the problem, of course, is that those were temporary solutions rather than permanent solutions. And it's very difficult to get a permanent solution uh, to the problems of unemployment and the challenges of re-employment because there is no coalition of people who think of themselves as the future unemployed. Nobody likes to think of themselves as as somebody who's going to lose a job until it happens. And and unlike, uh, for example, uh, 
retirees, where everyone hopes to be a retiree and the American Association of Retired Persons has been enormously effective in state and federal legislatures. Uh, there is no uh, American Association of the Future Unemployed, and, and there's not going to be. And so it took the pandemic, really, for Congress to understand the weaknesses in the existing system, but then um, after the emergency has seemingly passed, uh, Congress has lost interest in this issue. Although, is, is this a case where where this is a, a kind of approximate gain? It, it seems to me that even though, as you said, Congress has sort of lost interest in the issue and in the emergency phase of the pandemic seems to have passed us by, are, there is a lot of movement going on in labor markets. I mean, the idea of the great resignation and, and, and a lot of shifting around, um, is this a moment that, that could still be a place where we could pursue a proximate goal, perhaps not around the idea of unemployment, but around the idea of mobility in the employment markets? I, I think it is, um, you know, as you know, the evidence now is that many workers, most workers, are going to have to change jobs as many as 12 to 15 times during a lifetime. Um, when I think of uh, my students at Columbia or uh, undergraduates at many colleges around the country, a lot of those young people view that as an opportunity uh, to go from one job to another. Uh, but when you think about middle-aged uh, men or women who, who have only a high school degree and who've been working at a job for several years, becoming unemployed is, is devastating, uh, not only to their financial life, but also psychologically uh, and in the home. You see things like domestic abuse increasing and the like. So this is really a deep and important problem. And um, people have been reluctant to move to jobs in recent years in America. The old uh, slogan, go west, young man, uh, move to a job, it just seems not to be taking hold among a wide range of Americans. Now, the good news is that the pandemic has demonstrated that with the appropriate uh, broadband and, and the like, you can uh, do a lot of jobs from home that people thought you had to move to. So there are opportunities here, and I do think that, um, as you suggest, structuring this as a solution to job mobility and and improving and upskilling uh, people workers uh, prospects uh, for income uh, does have does have a lot of moral force and the prospect of of generating the kind of coalition that just looking at unemployment insurance uh, would not this is why we think that the universal adjustment assistance program that we've proposed is in fact approximate goal and one that that could be reached with the right leadership and and resources behind it so 
So you mentioned broadband, and I think this points us to uh, another uh, another proposal that you offer, um, having to do with infrastructure. And of course, infrastructure seems to be one of those. It's sort of like the weather; everybody wants to talk about it, but nobody wants to do anything about it. Um, you offer um, a number of proposals for, if I understand it correctly, public-private partnerships to help develop our uh, crumbling infrastructure. Structure. We do. Uh, it is worth saying that when the book was was written, um, it was before the Biden administration took office, and Congress did pass an important um, infrastructure bill uh, in in the past year, and so there is uh, now more money from the public sector to do some of the things that we argue for, including not only uh, roads and and bridges and and trains and the like, but also broadband in rural areas um, and so forth. And we do offer a number of successful examples of public-private partnerships. The revision of a and it's a really quite terrific revision of LaGuardia Airport, which uh, Joe Joe Biden uh, famously referred to one of the terminals there as something you would expect in a third world country. Uh, and it has now moved through a public-private partnership uh, into a, a really first-rate uh, uh, terminal uh, is one example. Uh, the Denver uh, light rail system, which surrounds uh, Denver and also provides important uh, light rail transportation from the Denver airport to downtown Denver has led to the revitalization of, uh, of that area of Denver. Um, you do have to be careful with public-private partnerships. There are incentives for um, politicians to take existing infrastructure and shift it to the private sector uh, the most notorious example of this, I think, is is private toll roads. But the worst example of it is um, the Chicago parking meter system, which was sold to a private partnership because the mayor of Chicago then didn't want to raise property taxes and wanted to get a big infusion of cash and, and sold it for a lump sum and then gave the private parties the authority to raise the meter prices and and create a whole series of disadvantages for the people of Chicago. So we want to be clear that we're not proposing selling existing infrastructure. We're proposing a very careful bidding and, and, and um, guarantees in the context of, of financing public-private partnerships, but it does create opportunities for making public dollars go much further than they might otherwise go. So let's then, uh, we'll talk a little bit about, and you you kind of bring a lot of these together into one chapter, um, an expanded role for Medicare. Yeah, so, so there's been a lot of talk about expanding Medicare. As you know, Bernie Sanders and, and some others in the Democratic mm-hmm. Party Medicare for all. Uh, urge Medicare for all. Um, it turns out that that's an extraordinarily 
costly um, uh, expansion of Medicare. And uh, the option that has taken hold among members of Congress who want to be more gradual about it has been to lower the eligibility age for Medicare from 65, which is where it now is, to 55 or so. Uh, This is also an expensive uh, expansion because as you age, uh, your health expenditures go up uh, as as an aggregate matter. It doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to most of us. Right. And so we uh, actually urge expanding Medicare from the bottom up and essentially creating a public uh, option uh, voluntarily for people beginning in their 30s to enter into Medicare. They'll be much cheaper to cover. And Medicare uh, has been actually quite effective, although this doesn't come through in the press, at keeping medical costs under control because of its pricing mechanisms. And so uh, this would be a successful way of expanding health insurance coverage for those who are not covered and want coverage uh, without breaking the bank or, or, or uh, um, continuing to, to use public insurance only for the most risky of people. Although the public option was rejected pretty soundly, not well, it was defeated fairly soundly when the Obamacare legislation went through, uh, you know, whatever that was. Well, it was defe- why now? Sorry, go ahead. Why now is a more appropriate moment for for that idea? Well, the public option was was defeated um, as a part of Obamacare which was a, a, an option that would have allowed you to, to elect into a public program uh, similar to Medicare. Um, it was largely defeated, actually, uh, because of the fact that Obama needed every Democratic vote at that time in order to get Medicare. And at that moment, uh, Joe Lieberman was of Connecticut was playing the role that we now see uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia playing, and uh, many of the large health insurers were located in Connecticut. And uh, Lieberman basically said that you couldn't get his vote with a public option, and so Obama had to give up on it. Uh, he's now no longer in Congress, and, and I think people uh, have come to understand that a public option uh, would create the opportunity for cost savings, which was the big gap in what Obama was able to accomplish in his Obamacare efforts. Um, They were successful, I think, in increasing coverage, and the Biden administration has been uh, successful in its uh, first year or two in keeping um, options open um, at lower costs for, for many people to join Obamacare. But virtually all of the cost savings mechanisms, including importantly the public option, were uh, eliminated uh, as Obamacare went through the went through the Congress. So this is a this is an option to expand um, Medicare. Um, you know, I think that y- y- there are alternative ways of accomplishing this to what we suggest. 
but it is, I think, an original idea that has a lot of promise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, trying to get, as you said, trying to get 30-year-olds into the pool is absolutely necessary to, to reduce the, to, to get them, to get them in and, and reduce the costs overall. Um, so let's move on to, uh, you have two ideas, I think, uh, revolving around education. The first is for uh, a guaranteed early childhood education. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I think that, that education is extremely important, um, and I'm happy to talk about public school education as well. Um, yeah. But we, we, we have really discovered that there is widespread support, both in the blue states and in the red states, for early childhood education. Um, Washington, D.C., to take one example, has a very effective uh, preschool program, a public preschool program for three-year-old and four-year-old children. Uh, cities like New York and Boston have, have done so, at least for four-year-olds. Interestingly enough, the most um, successful program in terms of quality, at least as measured by the independent education specialist who grade these things, um, has been in Alabama. Um, and Alabama has been, uh, has had a successful program. Oklahoma, another red state, has had a successful program. And, uh, and it seems that, that, that the evidence is now becoming quite strong that early education really does have a long-term impact on children's outcomes in the labor market over time. And uh, uh, and it also is a way of providing a beginning at age three or four, uh, hopefully at age three, effective child care uh, where the U.S. has really uh, been very inadequate in its support uh, for uh, child care, even in the context of two earner families where we know both uh, parents really need to work in order to make ends meet. Yeah, I thought the story that you tell in this chapter about the the World War II era program uh, that provided early childhood education for um, for young people was, was just I, I've been like, I've been telling my students about it. It's just a, it's just such a neat anecdote. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, during World War II, all the men, uh, all the yeah. working age men, at least, or many of them in the United States, millions and millions of them were were off fighting and, and women had to enter the workforce in order to keep uh, particularly manufacturing going in the United States. The image, the classic image, of course, is Rosie the Riveter, um, a, a portrait we've all seen, I'm sure. Um, and uh, the government provided very uh, successfully widespread early education for children uh during World War II, after the end of the war, this disappeared. Uh, but it is worth noting, and we also talk about this in the book, that the Defense Department, uh, which you know has similar issues for its um, for for its members, uh, does provide a very effective early education. Uh, for for the children of, of the military 
And so there are examples of how this has worked in the United States, both uh, contemporaneous examples in the states and uh, through the federal government, both uh, through defense and through the World War II example. Uh, so, so we're really quite optimistic about this. This is one of the more popular pieces of the Biden proposals that uh, so far have been stuck in Congress, uh, but there is widespread support for it um, among um, both educators and parents, which is a pretty good basis for forming an effective coalition. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the uh, the, the reason the the World War II program was so interesting is that, as you point out, the 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 young people who went through it they they had better health outcomes throughout the rest of their lives, and uh, and as as you said, better participation in the labor markets, which I think, um, you know, I, I guess that's what we all want, isn't it? Exactly. Um, so the the same chapter does talk about trying to improve k-12 education uh this one (laughs) this is a harder one yeah i think it's very very hard you know we were we spent a lot of time uh really trying to find what we regarded as a successful proposal for improving k-12 education uh, you know, when I grew up, public schools were the were the way up and out um, of of uh, uh, you know it was it was the way in which uh, parents were convinced that their children would do better than than they had. Um, I, I have to say, I have a a daughter uh, who's committed uh, to teaching um, underprivileged uh, children, and she's. Uh, now taught in New York, Boston, and is currently teaching a fourth grade class in Oakland. And I spent a lot of time with her uh, trying to find out whether there were systemic changes that we thought were going to be successful. And finally, uh, Ian and I, after a lot of work, decided that the way that public education is improving in the United States is really school by school or district by district. Occasionally you'll get a leader of a school district that will be transformative in improving the quality of the public schools. And um, and as you know, the charter school movement in the United States has been um, quite successful in some contexts and, and less successful in others. Uh, and again, it depends on the leadership of the organization and um, and what I've learned from my daughter who's a teacher is it also depends uh, enormously on the leadership of each school. And um, and so we didn't have a solution to this. And, and, and here I do think that um, it's worth just mentioning labor unions because we are very supportive of uh, – increasing the this sway of, of private labor unions, which have essentially, if not disappeared, have, have withered in the United States uh, now for over half a century. Um, and that has been hugely important in the legislative process because it gives uh, businesses huge amounts of power uh, and ordinary workers um, no ready organizational support for their needs and so forth. Um, but again, uh, public um, 
unions have been something of a mixed uh, blessing uh, in the United States. Uh, and as we've seen in recent uh, months and, and years, the, the teachers' unions are sometimes you know, very effective and a force for improvement, but uh, sometimes are, are not only a, not a, a source of improvement, but are really um, blocking changes that, that might be uh, uh, very successful in terms of, of uh of improving the lives of their of their students, um, I will say that we did look closely at both uh, George um, W. Bush's efforts uh, to come up with a federal uh, system of improving education, and then Barack Obama did the same. And it turned out that neither one of them was 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 something that you could count as a success. And so we just couldn't find a model that we could embrace. Um, on K-12 education. So I think there is no silver bullet uh, to that. But if uh, someone can come up with it, uh, we'd be delighted to see it. So uh, the book then goes on to describe how to pay for this. And and if I understand you correctly, you are proposing a value-added tax in, in place of um, some of the calls to tax the wealthy. Am, am I getting that correct? Well, they're not really in place of, of calls to tax the wealthy. Um, we're, we're, we're quite supportive of taxing the wealthy. Uh, some of the proposals uh, have really had, um, really have, have, have problems so that uh, we do talk, for example, about a wealth tax and um, I think that that uh, any betting uh, person, and there seem to be a lot of gamblers now in America, if my television isn't, advertisements. Isn't that amazing? Are... <laughs> that, that's one of the most remarkable things. I've, I've noticed the same thing. It's, it baffles me. <laughs> exactly. If you watch television at all, you're constantly being invited to gamble. Uh, my goodness. But as I tell my students, if, if I were a betting person, and I am, uh, I would wager a lot that a supreme that the Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court, uh, would strike down as unconstitutional a federal wealth tax. Uh, there's a lot of evidence of that in in a recent opinion um, of the court, and um, and therefore I don't think you can uh, tax wealth directly. Uh, the most important taxes on wealth in the United States at the federal level are the estate tax and the gift tax. Uh, and they have, uh, since 2001, uh, been greatly decreased with the support, to, to our great surprise, of, of over 60% of the public when they're uh, asking polls whether they'd like to get rid of the estate tax. Now, some of this has to do with the way the questions are asked and and. Sure. Uh, the framing of the estate tax as a tax on death rather than a tax on wealth and so forth. Uh, but we, but we would support um, certainly uh, closing many of the loopholes uh, in the estate tax. There seemed to be a movement in Congress to do that earlier this year, uh, but it uh, dissipated. There was a provision in a house bill that would have closed a lot of obvious and important loopholes that, uh, 
just disappeared somehow. It was a Democratic bill, and so I assume it dis- disappeared at the hand of some Democrats. But uh, but it's very hard to do uh, politically. Um, you know, we're for taxing hedge fund and private equity uh, owners and managers at, at ordinary income rates rather than capital gain rates, the so-called carried interest loophole. Um, you know, we're for, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly for increasing taxes on dividends given the, de- the reduction in the corporate income tax and, and, uh, uh, and, and so forth. But, but I guess the main point is that the kinds of, uh, programs and policies that we need to protect the, the middle class and below are expensive and, um, it's very hard to finance those programs right. without uh, some uh, broad-based tax. And it's become clear that the Republicans who are against any taxes and have been uh, since the late 70s uh, have been very successful in creating anti-tax uh, attitudes. Uh, I think that's uh, a social movement that has been enormously successful to the detriment of the country. Um, and the Democrats have essentially surrendered. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, as you know, has promised that he would not tax anyone over uh, with less than $400,000 of income. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barack Obama's number had been uh, 250000 but when he got into office, it went up to 400000 So uh, the Democrats only want to tax the rich, and the Republicans don't want to tax anybody and um, as a result, we have the largest debt in the nation's history since the end of World War II. And at that time, 95% of the debt was owed to Americans, whereas now close to half the debt is owed to foreigners. And so every dollar of interest that we pay on the federal debt um, Forty-five uh, or fifty cents uh, goes He's out of the country, the and so I think that if you look around the world at those places that have successful uh, protections for uh, economic insecurity and and job loss and uh, economic disruptions, uh, the one thing that you find is that they all have value-added taxes. 170 countries now have value-added taxes. Um, And uh, the United States is the only developed country that does not have such a tax. And it's a a national sales tax, essentially. And if you look at polling data and you look at uh, state initiatives for infrastructure and the like, it it turns out that sales taxes are uh, are much more... uh, readily approved by voters and and less uh, disliked by voters uh, than the property tax or uh, or the income tax. Um, so I think it's ultimately going to be an essential part of creating uh, an appropriate safety net in America, but we're a long way from it. And, uh, and as you know, it's not something that we recommended in the short term, uh, even though we yes. would have eliminated a lot of people from having to deal with the IRS and having to file income tax returns as part of the 
proposal that we talk about. It wouldn't that be nice? Uh, so may I ask, uh, what's next? What are you uh, working on uh, as a next project? Well, uh, <laughs> good that you asked. So I'm actually in, in the uh, process of writing a book. I've made a lot of progress on it, actually. Uh, a book that uh, Princeton University Press is going to publish on the anti-tax movement uh, in the United oh. States, uh, which begins with Proposition 13 in California, which was a, a limitation on property taxes, um, and then uh, took hold in the federal level uh, in the massive tax cuts of Ronald Reagan's uh, administration, um, and I think has been a, a major uh, force uh, in the country. I actually uh, describe it as the most underappreciated and underrecognized social movement of the last 50 years. And so, uh, so that's the book that I'm now working on, and I'm hoping to finish it uh, in the next six or eight months and get it to the press. So I was, I'm hoping that it comes out. Uh, at a time when there is no pandemic, which is uh, our <laughs> book was published uh, uh, just as Omicron, uh, I'm just not the Omicron, but just as COVID uh, started uh, uh, invading the country. And uh, this necessarily meant that the kind of attention to economic insecurity was overwhelmed by the health insecurities that uh, everyone in the country was facing as the book was published. Well, I'm going to look forward to uh, to seeing that next book. That, uh, that sounds really fascinating. Uh, Michael Gratz, thank you so much for your time today. It's, it's a great pleasure, Tom. I'm looking forward to talking about the next one with you. Very good. Um, once again, my guest today has been Michael Gratz, the author with Ian Shapiro of The Wolf at the Door, The Menace of in Economic Insecurity and How to Fight It from Harvard University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network. <laughs>